Hi, listeners. We're back to continue the story of Mary Shelley's life. If you haven't yet, you should go back and listen to episode 15, part one, in which we talk about Mary's birth and childhood. Yeah, this might not make sense if you don't. First, a reminder that the content warning from our last episode applies to this one too, so it might not be the best one to listen to with kids. And if you are triggered by miscarriage, suicide, death of a spouse, and or verbal and emotional abuse, please just look after yourself and skip this one if you need to. A second point for those who aren't on Twitter and didn't see me having a mini breakdown on Friday. Um, <laughs> so do you remember in part one's Round the World segment when we were incredibly intrigued by Gregor McGregor? And I'll just insert a clip of that here. In 1825, Gregor McGregor, as Eleanor notes untrustworthy on name alone, causes the first stock market crash in London by issuing a £300,000 loan, equivalent to £24 million in 2018. And there was no more information about that. I just found it fascinating. I was like, I need to know more. Mm-hmm. If you know more, write in, please. Well, it turns out that the dollop actually covered him in their series on the UK, and his life was so full of bizarre and, uh, I guess, unethical things that the stock market crash that he caused is just a blip in her biography so they actually released that on thursday and we released our episode on the friday so it's just a nice weird coincidence i I saw that show up on my feed and i've been a fan of theirs for a long time so i was really excited to see that yeah it was serendipity i'd never heard of them before but i really enjoyed that episode and it's a good companion piece Um, yeah i i feel i need to kind of notes that they're primarily you know they're first and foremost a comedy podcast so it might not appeal to everyone clearly if you're listening to this you're a real big fan of high comedy (laughs) yeah so we linked their episode on twitter at the time and hopefully by the time i'm editing this i'll be able to link to the youtube channel with that we can pick back up with the second part of episode 15 This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. left off last time, nearly 16-year-old Mary was on her way back to Scotland, her happy place, after a brief and bitter return home. The year was 1813, and things in the Godwin household were more fractious than ever. But in Scotland, Mary could look forward to spending time with her new BFF, 17-year-old Isabella Baxter, and she'd also have the opportunity to have scintillating discussions with William Baxter, the, the Baxter dad, um, and the rest of the family. They had a great fa- family dynamic going, and um, Mary fit right in there. And, of course, she also looked forward to wandering the Scottish countryside. Yeah, I think I saw at one point she describes Isabella as her soulmate. I was like, that's so, that's so cute, and also teenage girl. Yes, definitely. <laughs> The teenage girl vibes will only continue from here. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. 
Life hadn't been on hold while Mary was back in England, though. Isabella's older sister, Margaret, had just passed away when Mary arrived. The family was still in mourning. And uh, Margaret's husband, David, well, he may have been in mourning, but he also was on the prowl. It didn't take him long to decide he needed a new wife. The (laughs) 48-year-old... Let me just repeat that. The 48-year-old flirted with 16-year-old Mary for a while, um, but eventually set to wooing Isabella, who was one whole year older than Mary, uh, and by all accounts, welcomed his courtship. So she's like just over a third of his age. I was quickly doing the maths in my head, and I was like, I'm sure 48 is divisible by 16. Yes, it is. Hmm. Yeah, um, this is another stellar example of of what I call the Victorian daddy complex. There's a common trope in Victorian novels that, like, say, Jane Eyre, um, teenager, marries a much, much older Rochester in the end. Spoilers. Sorry for that, guys. <laughs> but um, It's only been out. Yeah. 150-something <laughs> years. But yeah, like, that's a really common thing in uh, life and literature at the time, and um, I'm still squicked out by it. Like, I will absolutely judge the past by present standards in this case, but um, society wasn't always worried about it, although it could be sort of scandalous. I know, I was sitting here judging a certain six-year age gap. (laughs) I think it's six years, my maths isn't ideal. And then I was like, oh, wait a second, that's pretty tame. Yeah, yeah. And I want to say I was judging that because of the age at which it started. Mm-hmm, Not, mm-hmm. You know, generally, that's nothing. Yeah, definitely. Both or definitely. adults when it starts. But we get ahead of ourselves a little bit. Yeah, we do. <laughs> so Isabella was pretty excited about uh, David's advances, apparently. Told her family that they were engaged and William Baxter sort of following the ideals that he learned from Mary's dad, William Godwin, uh, supported his daughter. Uh, which led to the whole family being excommunicated. But Isabella was happy, and Mary was sort of happy, basking in her friend's happiness and dreaming about her own future. Speaking of that teenage girl vibes, this is really the age when um, grand romance starts to get really appealing for a lot of girls, and I don't think that Mary was any exception for all that she's sort of held up as an exception in all other areas of her life. So Isabella's whirlwind sort of risque courtship um sets the standards high and she's probably wondering when is my turn going to come as she prepared for her return to england in march 1814 mary bought herself a tartan and remember those just became legal again so this is like a really (laughs) i don't know it's an interesting souvenir it's a really privileged souvenir um but also kind of a radical one they're just newly legalized. It's like going to Oregon and like right after Oregon or Washington, like right after recreational marijuana is legalized and, and buying yourself a souvenir and going home. Like the people might frown upon this choice. Um, perhaps she bought it because she's determined to hold on to one little piece of happiness and romance. I like to think of it in that kind of frame even if her family life was going to be basically soul crushing she would always have a tangible reminder of scotland i love the analogy of it being like um recreational marijuana though (laughs) can you tell i lived in oregon for five years what (laughs) no 
it's just the idea of like the mo- the 2019 analogy would be like Mary coming back and getting a weed sticker for her laptop or something. <laughs> she comes back with a pipe. Yeah. So on a sadder note, financially and emotionally, things at home were still very dire. Mary Jane had just shipped Fanny off on a prolonged visit to her aunts in Wales, either because of her depression or because she was in love with someone she shouldn't be. And more on that in a moment. Um, so accounts sort of vary on that. I mean, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, why not both? Why not both, right? It could be. Um, Probably pretty depressed if you're in love with someone you shouldn't be. Yeah. And she's 18 at the time. So still also in that teenage girl, everything is really heightened right at this moment in her life. Financially, William Godwin had reached the point of not quite, but actually definitely soliciting and graciously accepting money from a young nobleman who admired his work. That young nobleman's name, Percy Shelley. And he's not going to play a pretty large role in this story. Hmm. So maybe we should take a minute for some fast facts about Percy Bysshe Shelley. Percy was born August 4th, 1792, the oldest son of Sir Timothy Shelley, an MP, and Elizabeth Pitpole, who was a Sussex landowner. For those keeping track of astrology, Percy is a cancer. So he, he had four little sisters and a baby brother, and I really empathize that with as the oldest of three little sisters and a baby brother. <laughs> strikingly near. So he was tutored at home until the age of 10 and then attended an academy for two years before entering Eton. And if you remember our episodes on Thomas Adolphus and Anthony Trollope last year, uh, when we talked about the way older boys would sometimes, often, torment the younger boys, well, I'm sad to say that Percy was the object of lots of such bullying during his time at school. Yeah, and I think like any kid who's bullied, you you get an interest that you can kind of go inside of yourself mm-hmm. and look at that. So perhaps unsurprisingly, he became obsessed with electricity. I think that's still pretty common for kids today, but especially when it's just getting new. And he liked to charge his doorknob so that it would shock people. It's just good old fashioned fun. Yep, and apparently this is an interest that follows him through the rest of his life. At one point, he does an at one point, he does an electrical experiment at home and nearly burns the family manor down, much to the <laughs> delight of his parents. <laughs> I'm sure. I think it was Percy when I was reading Charlotte Gordon's book, and she just lists all the things. And then at one point, she just says, accidentally set fire to the butler. <laughs> no more information on how he did that. I'm assuming it's related to electricity experiments, but... Probably. Uh, I would not have wanted to be his parent ever. <laughs> no, I'm definitely not one of his servants. Mm-mm. So in fall of 1810, Percy started at Oxford. Between 1810 and 1811, at the ages of 18 and 19, Percy published two Gothic novels and two volumes of poetry. Um, but by March of 1811, Percy and his friend, Thomas Jefferson Hogg, were expelled from Oxford because Shelley wrote a pamphlet called The Necessity of Atheism, and Hogg wouldn't snitch on him, probably because someone read him too much Mother Goose. That's a reference to our last episode, so <laughs> go back and listen if you haven't yet. Someone has split him. Yep. <laughs> 
On the 28th of August 1811, the 19-year-old Shelley eloped to Scotland with 16-year-old Harriet Westbrook, whom he believed he was rescuing from a bad family situation. Yep, that's a pattern in his life, as we'll soon see. According to the Romanticism blog, while Percy was waiting for Harriet before their elopement, he ate a bunch of oysters and tossed away the shells saying, quote, this is a very shelly business, end quote. <laughs> I feel like he would be right at home with us. <laughs> Dad jokes galore. <laughs> so Percy and Harriet travelled around Ireland and North Wales, while Percy tried to establish himself as a politician slash political writer by delivering pamphlets but they were running out of money and Harriet was getting frustrated. In part, that's because she was pregnant. Hmm, understandable. In June of 1813, Harriet Shelley gave birth to their daughter, Ianthe. For Percy, the romance of the relationship was gone at this point. Um, Harriet wanted stability for herself and her infant daughter and was not content anymore to follow him around penniless, basically, on adventures of political and philosophical nature. <laughs> yeah, I saw something where he said that so she probably hadn't cheated on him, but he said she had, and he might have genuinely believed this because she changed. I was like, well, also you met when she was 16. Everyone changes when they're... Yeah, right. So more on that yeah. in, a, in a bit, but... That's our boy Percy's life up to this point, and I feel compelled to say that we are breaking from literary tradition by calling him by his first name, but that's in part because most people will do that to marry anyway, and really I wanted to equalize the playing field, but also if it comes down to a battle of the Shelleys, I think Mary is the one who really deserves the name. She comes into it and makes it her own, so if we switch over to saying Shelley at any point, We'll be talking about Mary. Yeah. I feel like she had the name for longer as well. Maybe a morbid way of looking at it, but... That's also true. <laughs> Another mild spoiler, yeah. but anyway. <laughs> um, so some things were happening at home while Mary was in Scotland. Like I said, life is never on hold while you're traveling. Percy had heard about William Godwin or heard that William Godwin was still alive uh, from a friend of his and decided to reach out to this literary giant who he admired. So I thought I'd read you this, this initial letter that he sent to William Godwin as a way of sort of picking back up the threads of our story. So he sends this on the 3rd of January, 1812. You will be surprised at hearing from a stranger. No introduction has, nor in all probability ever will authorize, that which common thinkers would call a liberty. It is, however, a liberty which, although not sanctioned by custom, is so far from being reprobated by reason, that the dearest interests of mankind imperiously demand that a certain etiquette of fashion should no longer keep man at a distance from man and impose its flimsy fancies between the free communication of intellect. The name of Godwin has been used to excite in me feelings of reverence and admiration. 
I have been accustomed to consider him a luminary, too dazzling for the darkness which surrounds him, and from the earliest period of my knowledge of his principles, I have ardently desired to share on the footing of intimacy that intellect which I have delighted to contemplate in its emanations. Considering then these feelings, you will not be surprised at the inconceivable emotions with which I learned your existence and your dwelling. I had enrolled your name on the list of the honorable dead. I had felt no regret that the glory of your being had passed from this earth of ours. It is not so. You still live, and I firmly believe are still planning the welfare of humankind. I have but just entered on the scene of human operations, yet my feelings and my reasonings correspond with what yours were. My course has been short but eventful. I have seen much of human prejudice, suffered much from human persecution. Yet I see no reason, hence inferable, which should alter my wishes for their renovation. The ill treatment I have met with has more than ever impressed the truth of my principles on my judgment. I am young. I am ardent in the cause of philanthropy and truth. Do not suppose that this is vanity. I am not conscious that it influences this portraiture. I imagine myself dispassionately describing the state of my mind. I am young. You have gone before me. I doubt not are a veteran to me in the years of persecution. Is it strange that defying presidents as I have done, I should outstep the limits of custom's prescription and endeavor to make my desire useful by a friendship with William Godwin? I pray you to answer this letter. Imperfect as may be my capacity, my desire is ardent and unintermitted. Half an hour would be at least humanely employed in the experiment. I may mistake your residence. Certain feelings of which I may be an inadequate arbiter may induce you to desire concealment. I may not, in fine, have an answer to this letter. If I do not when I come to London, I shall seek for you. I am convinced I could represent myself to you in such terms as not to be thought wholly unworthy of your friendship. At least if desire for universal happiness has any claim upon your preference, that desire I can exhibit. Adieu. I shall earnestly await your answer. Percy B. Shelley Whew, so that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I think this says a lot about his character, like Percy's character, how he thinks about himself at this point in time. I love how freely he just goes, so I thought you were dead, but it turns out you're not. Almost as if, almost as if that should be news to William. Right. <laughs> like, do you have to go to skip over that part? Yeah. I found out you're alive and I want to be friends with you now. Um, basically, I think you could be my guide into this world of... <laughs> Or like you're a forebear. I don't know. Yeah, it's a really interesting, like, you're really old and I look up to you and I thought you were dead. <laughs> but you're really cool, but also so am I. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, he's basically like, I'm just like you, except younger, um, possibly more brilliant. Who knows? <laughs> uh, but we we already know that Godwin's super prone to f- flattery right that's how his second wife bagged him (laughs) um so this is a great first step in their relationship like percy may not know it but he is well on his way to being buddies with godwin 
this is more of a kind of verbose way of saying you're a mortal being. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so, like, they hit it off. They start hanging out. Uh, Godwin's like, oh, you're you're rich. Like, can you spare this immortal being <laughs> some uh, some money? And Percy's like, sure. Even though, as we'll see, he like he's going to eventually come into an inheritance, um, but he hasn't yet. So basically, any money he throws around is money that he's sort of taken out on loan against his own estate. Um, so he's going to have to pay it back with interest eventually, but that doesn't seem to stop him ever. Risky business. Yeah. So Shelley called on the Godwins frequently in the aftermath of this letter, sometimes with his wife Harriet in tow, apparently, although like the documentation of that seems fuzzy. Some things I read said that uh, like that Fanny and Jane really admired Harriet and the way she dressed. Um, so was she around or like, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to pin that down. But Shelley was definitely there. Harriet, maybe. Yeah, I was really frustrated when I was trying to research for this. Like, I just want to know more about Harriet. Mm -hmm. I didn't think I could find, at one point I was trying to find just her birth year so I could figure out how old she was at certain points. I could not find that. Yeah, yeah. And part of this is that we don't have access to all of the archival materials, but even then, like, not everything is in the archives. It depends on if people thought you were worth archiving. Yeah. So Harriet's kind of a mystery lady to us for most of this episode, sadly. Um, she may or may not have visited the Godwins and met Fanny and um, Jane. We'll never know. But um, events would soon conspire to make Shelley's growing friendship with the Godwins uh, pretty fraught. Let's say fraught, yeah. This letter was written in 1812, so the men have a couple of years to develop a friendship. Um, first by writing letters and eventually by visits, mostly when Mary is out of the country. Fast forward to April 1814. Mary is almost 17 years old, and the Godwins are expecting a dinner guest. Can you guess who? <laughs> Hear the thunder rolling in the distance and the lightning crackling. It's about to be another one of those fateful moments. TM. Uh, trademark fateful moment for Mary Shelley. Yeah, if you didn't guess, the dinner guest is Percy Shelley, and this may be the first time they meet. Although that's up in the air, too. Percy would later tell his college buddy, Thomas Hogg, you know, the one he got expelled, um, that he'd been seeing signs for days before this dinner. The woman of his dreams was close, so close on the horizon. He claimed, in fact, that he'd already begun writing uh, a John Doe letter to his wife Harriet, explaining that his love belonged to another. So it's a bit of an understatement <laughs> to say that he was emotionally and psychically open for a love match. And I suspect he was a bit in love with the idea of Mary before he even met her. She was the child of two radical literary greats. His perfect match, theoretically. I feel a bit sorry for her this happened. Yeah. You know, I wonder if she was frustrated by it. Because as a child, 
it made her feel super important, at least as far as we can tell. But is she ever going to get to stand on her own reputation? It's the question that must have started occurring to her at some point. Yeah. Is it actually about her or the idea of her? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this idea of her parentage is really going to be important throughout. Um, In one of his 1812 letters to Godwin, Percy apparently asked if Fanny could come live with him and Harriet. Um, No big deal. Just want your daughter. Um, Wollstonecraft's child, you know. (laughs) Can she come live with me? Godwin, who's never met him yet, is like, nah, bro. Uh, Not not happening. Um, Yeah, you seem cool, but we haven't actually ever met. So no, you can't have my daughter or stepdaughter or whatever yeah, Fanny which is... is but yeah you can't have this woman who is just because she's related to my wife yeah yeah so um I I liken this to a case of Laurie and the March sisters if you're a little yes. woman fan he um at one point he <laughs> he says he just wants to marry any March sister basically right and so <laughs> Shelley just wants some of that sweet Godwin Wollstonecraft pie. He doesn't care <laughs> how he gets it. <laughs> um, it's really crass, but also I think his actions warrant that um, assessment there. Yeah. So again, it's an April night in 1814. Percy's just arrived at 41 Skinner Street for dinner. Godwin is planning to ask him to hurry up and uh, pay that money he's promised. He's been enticing him with loans all this time. Um, Jane is chattering away. I feel bad. I keep writing her like this sort of one note character, um, partly because that's how she's characterized in all of the literature. But, um, if this were about Jane, we would be taking a lot of a different perspective about if she were our main subject, right? We'd be a lot more sympathetic with her, I think. And so I, in a way, really like Jane. I feel like she's, yeah, from one point of view, I'd say a kind of Byronic hero, in a way that makes sense with this mm-hmm. but also my, she's kind of a she's the Regina George of the story yeah you, I kept thinking of her as Jam Brady um, in that like middle kid trying to stand on her own and find out how she shines kind of way yeah but yeah I can I can see her as Regina George for sure she's just got a lot of mischievous energy around her mm-hmm. true getting away from the picture i'm painting yeah. so godwin's working up the courage to ask percy when he's actually going to give him the loan that he's been promising jane's doing jane's thing mary jane is feeding the new baby william making sure he's not like playing in the mashed potatoes i don't know and in the meantime Percy's making eyes at teenage Mary across the dinner table, dazzling her with his brown hair, blue eyes, open collar, and bad boy attitude. Picture this with me, listeners. (laughs) It doesn't really seem like a meet-cute to me, but apparently that's how they felt about it. The idea of any potential suitor coming for kind of everyday family dinner is... Maybe that's a me issue, but that sounds horrible. (laughs) It's not my idea of fun either, having gone through the similar scenes. Yeah. 
There's some speculation that she actually met him the year before um, on her brief return home from Scotland. Uh, Muriel Spark suggests this in her, um, I think it's 1953 biography of Mary Shelley called Child of Light. But I don't know. It's really hard to say. Um, if she did happen to meet him then, uh, this meeting is the one that matters because this one is when they really notice each other and sparks start to fly. Yeah, this is the one that would be in the rom-com. Yeah. Um, and then just another kind of point of historical speculation here is that... Um, after the events that we relate today, in the aftermath of them, uh, Mary Jane and William uh, let it be known that Shelley had been sort of flirting with Fanny and Jane. And um, yeah, it's it's hard to say how true that is, although the odds are not like astronomically high or anything. Like it's pro- it's probable that that could have happened. Um, but it also kind of, uh, sour grapes on their part. Like they're just trying to, uh, reclaim their own respectability by knocking Percy down a peg or two. Relatedly, they also blame him for Fanny's, uh, increasing depression. They never blame themselves or the way that they've been treating her all this time, but Percy, yeah. Why would they? It was all Percy's fault. It's not like they make it very clear Mary and then Jane are the preferred children. Oh, yeah, no. There's there's no clear favorites in this household. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't bring that up to cast doubt on uh, capital T, true, capital L, love or anything, but um, especially because I think they had a really profound and passionate relationship at, at times. Spoilers, I guess. Not really. But at this particular moment... In hindsight, Percy doesn't look that great. Um, he looks like, like I said, like he's uh, basically Laurie from the from Little Women. He's he's a player. Right? He's just trying to get any connected Wollstonecraft Godwin daughter that he can potentially. Although he's also married at this point, and so you know, maybe not. Maybe he's, I don't know, just amusing himself. I'm just digging myself into a deeper hole. Can you tell that I'm not a huge Percy fan <laughs> right now? I went through real waves of being like, oh, yeah. I'm much, I, I like him so much better now. And then waves of being like, oh, no, he's terrible. And I think basically he's a person who I enjoy from afar yeah. as a complete nightmare of a human being. yeah. But I don't want to be friends with him. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, this is you, mm-hmm. this is the world's dumbest comparison, but it's kind of like how I really love Gritty, but I don't know if I want to be in the same room as him. <laughs> like, That's he fair. Seems very chaotic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, Meet Percy at a dinner party? Sure. Have to rely on him in any way? No. Yeah. Please, please no. <laughs> no, I'm imagining Gritty as someone's husband and I just... <laughs> oh, oh no. <laughs> that's terrifying. Truly. So 
I guess I'll give Percy the benefit of the doubt here and say that maybe, like, maybe he did think about Fanny and or Jane. Um, maybe the moment he saw Mary, it was love at first sight. And, uh, he maybe, yeah, I don't know. I mean. <laughs> That's a really half-hearted giving him the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> well, what I was going to say was open hair, hazel eyes, she sounds pretty great to me. yeah. Maybe it's because I also fit that description. Uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, I mean, Mary, like, certainly had the intellectual and um, cosmetic, like, capability of totally sweeping him off his feet. I don't want to discount that at all. Like, she, even at this early point in her life, was smart and insightful and also, by all accounts, pretty. So, yeah. Uh, anyways, we'll put a pin in that because it's impossible to like go back in time and pinpoint somebody's true motivations, but there you have it, the messiness of their first meeting. I feel like that's a good point for a break. Yeah. So when we get back, we'll talk about what happens next. so let's talk about the elopement so mary didn't have the benefit of even our admittedly muddy hindsight and if she had don't think either of us think she would have done anything differently mm-hmm. so her courtship with percy was shortened to the point they met in april and by may or june they're deep in the machinations to meet alone they had asked jane to help them cover their little getaways and she agreed though Historians do tend to agree it was in the hope that Percy would eventually see the error of his ways and pick her. More of that later. Mm-hmm. Around this time, Fanny came back from her stay with the aunts. It seems like she wasn't really included in Mary and Percy's intrigue. Either because she was too much of a rule follower to be trusted or because of her own infatuation with Percy. Although I do feel like there's a suggestion that everyone's infatuated with Percy, and I'm like, did Percy write this? Yep. <laughs> did Percy pay for this biography like, from yeah. beyond the grave? <laughs> so Mary and Jane would set out on whatever contrived errand they'd come up with. Then Percy would just happen to appear, and Jane would wander around while the lovers found nearby gardens to while away the time in. Soon, Mary started taking Percy to her most sacred place. Which is <laughs> that's not a euphemism. Um, I mean, it could be. It works as a euphemism, but <laughs> yeah, you can't tell. Courtney wrote that line, yeah. and then I found it hilarious. Um, you might remember in the last episode I said I was really fascinated by this whole mythology around the churchyard because she took him to her mother's grave in St Pancras Churchyard. There, they would read to each other, sort of echoing Mary's early reading lessons. If you think back, as I said to the last episode. And they'd swap stories about their sad home lives, their dreams and their ideals. And I kind of hinted this earlier, but a lot of the stories Percy shared were exaggerations or outright lies. 
So he told Mary that Harriet cheated on him. As I say, some very generous researchers think he believed she did by changing her personality, which is odd. And that the baby probably wasn't his, which bro is. Like, you yeah. don't need to go on um, yeah. any of those daytime TV shows to know that it probably is. <laughs> um, his father had forced him to do a stint in a mental hospital and more. And the mental hospital, I think, from my reading, was more like... His father said he wouldn't protect him from debtor's prison if he kept spending recklessly, mm. which is horrible of him. How rude, Dad. And Mary, well, for all her budding love, she's also smart enough to know that Percy might be her only ticket out of the Godwin household, away from Mary Jane and a quite oppressive family life. Yeah, so as a woman whose father was on the brink of bankruptcy, she didn't have a dowry. So the traditional marriage market was kind of shot for her, no matter how you looked at it. Like she might be able to quote, catch someone based on her parents' reputation and her own intelligence. But like that kind of situation was this situation. Like Percy was interested in her for that. Like, (laughs) yeah so all love and romance aside um she would have been keenly aware of her own prospects even in a household where marriage had not always been sort of the ideal institution yeah and how often is someone going to come along who values you for that kind of radical background who also has money yeah so there are a lot of practicalities so things kind of continued in that vein for about six weeks during which time Percy fell in love with Mary's originality. Uh, so he'd later tell his buddy Thomas Hogg she surpassed his own in genuine elevation and magnificence. Her passion and politics also drew him in. So on June 27th, Mary had had enough of mere talk. In the moment that puts most romance movie declarations to shame, she broke through 19th century gender mores and... I just want to read Charlotte Gordon's description of this episode here because I think she puts it really beautifully. So, quote, She stood in front of her mother's gravestone, looked straight into Shelley's eyes, and did what no young woman was supposed to do. She declared she loved him and threw herself into his arms. End of quote. So in the height of passion, they lay down and caressed with what Mary would later call the full ardour of love. So that whole episode has become kind of famous or infamous in popular culture. If you ever see roundups on Twitter or Tumblr of fun literary facts or spooky facts, this tends to come up. Mm-hmm. One of my favourites in that line is a an article on Bustle by Charlotte Arlen. And she starts, she kind of starts it with, until you have sex with your married boyfriend on your own mother's grave, you will never ever be as goth as Mary Shelley. Yeah, but it's super unlikely they actually had sex. So the yeah the full order quote kind of gets misinterpreted to mean penetrative sex when that's very unlikely. Um, mm-hmm. So aside from it being super public and Mary being inexperienced, I feel like anybody who's worn or been around a wedding dress will appreciate that women's clothing in 1814 was not really designed for impromptu dresses. Yeah, like that that uh, Hulu TV show Harlots Notwithstanding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, having been in St. Pancras Churchyard, I'll say there's, like, really no place to hide, and, like, those graves are center stage, so... Um, yeah, it's super public, and then you've got yeah. really complicated yeah. underwear, like, yeah, and especially if you, if you're not experienced, it's not going to be a great time. Yeah. So really, basically, they just made out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, at most. Someone might have got a bit handsy, but it wasn't <laughs> sex. Mm-hmm. Which is not a phrase yeah. that I thought I would be saying on a literary podcast, but... <laughs> They'd go on in the future to call this Shelley's birthday the start of his new life. And while Gorner notes that it might more accurately be considered Mary's new birthday, um, the couple's declaration is telling. So Percy, his desires, aspirations and needs would define the relationship, which still, as we were saying earlier, and using the word Shelley... Um, it's still the case. Mm-hmm. So it all would be well for Mary if, and as long as, her desires, aspirations, and needs coincided with Percy's. So if that's not ringing alarm bells, I don't know what would. But for now, in this moment, they were on top of the world. As easy as it is for us to spot red flags from this 21st century perspective, I think they really did love and respect each other. Maybe in ways that are hard to define and recognize but history is messy y'all another reason i am really interested in harriet is her her take on this supremely romantic moment was understandably a little bit different so in harriet's opinion mary was determined to seduce him she heated his imagination by talking of her mother and going to her grave with him every day till at last she told him she was dying of love for him Again, a really good point to remind ourselves that Harriet and Mary are both teenage girls. So Mary's 16 at this point, and Harriet, if my admittedly dodgy maths is correct, I think is 18. Yeah, I think that's right. So before we get carried away with the idea that Harriet's his wife, she's also an 18-year-old. I think it's worth like noting that, sure, Mary did actually... like try to win him and that's fine like yeah whatever um but Percy wouldn't have been there if he didn't want to be won (laughs) like you know so Harriet's right in that sure Mary was seducing him but um Percy's far from an innocent victim (laughs) in this situation (laughs) like yeah I think they both knew what they were doing but if one of them was supposed to be more responsible if one of them knew more it was certainly Percy yeah. Right. And <laughs> um, if it wasn't going to be Mary, it was going to be something, someone else. Like, sorry, Harriet, but it's he's shopping around for a replacement wife at this point. So she just yeah. made sure it was her and not someone else. Yeah. Mary and Percy's elation uh, at this moment wouldn't last for long. Um, I mean, they would still be elated, but it would come under assault pretty quickly. They went to inform the Godwins about their love, and um, Mary probably hoped that Godwin would, like his follower, William Baxter, accept her unconventional romance. After all, he and her mother hadn't been married at first, and had only really married to protect Mary Wollstonecraft um, after she was burned by her first love, uh, Gilbert Imlay. Um, 
And both of them had been outspoken against marriage as an oppressive institution in their lives before their marriage. So Mary actually had good reason to expect support from her father, but she didn't get it. Surprise. (laughs) If anything, the news put Godwin in a really awkward position because he was still actively trying to get money from Percy. Um, Godwin put his foot down on the subject of the marriage right away, not hampered by sort of any appearance of a double standard or hypocrisy, but continued to meet with Percy on financial business. Because in his mind, I think um, a lot of the a lot of the scholarship I read on this seems to agree that um, for Godwin, uh, this was a natural way that um, sort of radical intellectualism worked. That those who had the money would support those who didn't, who brought value to the table otherwise. And so he viewed his relationship with Percy in that way, and didn't really think that the the personal side, the Mary falling in love with him side, had anything to do with the intellectual side. Uh, Percy didn't really agree. He eventually snapped, uh, bursting into the Godwin's home at 41 Skinner Street, bolting upstairs to Mary's room, and waving a pistol and a bottle of laudanum around, proposing that they Romeo and Juliet this thing. Um... Godwin wasn't at home, and Mary Jane couldn't really do anything to stop him as he shouted about killing himself if he couldn't be with Mary. It must have been a really scary day in the Godwin household. Mary eventually talked him down and got him to go home, but a few days later, the Godwins got news that Percy had taken a large dose of laudanum and was being treated by a doctor. Yeah, so again, from a modern perspective, you read that and basically a 16-year-old girl having to talk her, I think at this point, 22-year-old boyfriend out of killing himself because her dad doesn't approve of their relationship, it's pretty grim. And I think even without the age discrepancy, would seem like a hallmark of emotional abuse and coercive control. When they got the news that he was being treated by a doctor, It's actually Mary Jane who stayed with him until he felt better. And I feel like knowing how she interacted with children, I feel like he probably got a little bit of justice for that in Mary Jane being the person to look after him. Mm. (laughs) I'm trying to say that... For all of her flaws, I can't help but really like Mary Jane, especially in this moment. (laughs) I know, I was trying to find Uh, a way to say that without sounding really callous, but... I feel like Mary Jane and Jane mm. have a similar vibe where they just, they might be mean, but they're the only people who can be mean to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure, like, just from what I know about Percy, he's probably not the best invalid to be around. Oh, no. Like, he's probably pretty whiny, and Mary Jane is probably like, you, you did this to yourself, stop whining, take your medicine, go to sleep. Leave me alone. (laughs) You'll be fine. So scholars often turn to Percy's Queen Mab to think through this part of his life, this weird blend of um, just kind of of coming-of-age angst and uh, sort of um, not great behavior and also budding in, like, increasing idealism and radicalism. The poem, which he was writing as his marriage, in his mind, fell apart in 1812 and 13, wasn't published until much later. 
It opens with a dedication to Harriet, which I'll just read because it's really short. To Harriet, whose is the love that gleaming through the world wards off the poisonous arrow of its scorn? Whose is the warm impartial praise, virtue's most sweet reward? Beneath whose looks did my reviving soul riper in truth and virtuous daring grow? Whose eyes have I gazed fondly on and loved mankind the more? Harriet, on thine, thou wert my purer mind, thou wert the inspiration of my song. Thine are these early wilding flowers, though garlanded by me. Then press into thy breast this pledge of love, and know, though time may change and years may roll, each floweret gathered in my heart, it consecrates to thine. But by the end of the poem, Percy's changed his tune a bit. He closes it with a note about marriage that um, doesn't actually get published in all editions because I think, um, sort of flash forward to our later coverage of Mary Shelley's life, um, she was trying to shield him from social censure as she edited his collected works. And so she removed signs of infidelity and other things that would have been frowned on. Um, but in its sort of manuscript version, which he passed around to friends and friends of friends in a sort of closed Facebook sort of scenario, um, the note that closes Queen Mab suggests that to force a couple to live together, quote, after the decay of their affection would be a most intolerable tyranny, end quote. I think um, Mary, who was obviously privy to his writing at this point in their romance, uh, took the poem as a promise to her, despite its uh, dedication Reading and rereading her copy while Percy convalesced, Mary scribbled in the back, quote, This book is sacred to me, and as no other creature shall ever look into it, I may write in it what I please. Yet what shall I write, that I love the author beyond all powers of expression, and that I am parted from him? Dearest and only love, by that love we have promised to each other, although I may not be yours, I can never be another's. But I am thine, exclusively thine, by the kiss of love. End quote. So soon enough, notes began to flow back and forth between Percy's place and Skinner Street. Godwin's resounding no did not stop things from moving forward, apparently. Jane helped them deliver the, their notes at first, but she was caught. Um, no further details on the fallout of that but she was caught, and Mary bribed a servant in her stead. Percy and Mary were planning to run away together, and Jane, she promised not to tell as long as she got to go with them, which Mary understandably did not want to happen <laughs> at all. But Percy was surprisingly, or not, all for it. He branded himself as a liberator, as we mentioned above. He had saved himself from parental tyranny. He would saved Harriet from parental tyranny. And now he was going to achieve his coup de grace by saving two women, Mary and Jane, from parental oppression. They considered bringing Fanny, too, um, possibly <laughs> just to soak Percy's ego, who knows, 
but she'd been conditioned for so long to keep her head down and obey authority that everyone figured she'd give them away. I love that it sounds like Fanny has no part in this. It's just, mm, should we bring Fanny? Let's not ask Fanny if she wants to come. Yeah, no choice. Just rescue. <laughs> great, yeah. great plan, guys. Because that always goes really well. By July 28th, their plans were in place and the girls were all packed up and ready to hit the road. At 4 a.m., Mary and Jane crept downstairs and into the street, where a carriage was waiting. Jane skipped right over and climbed in, but at the last minute, Mary had a miniature crisis of conscience and turned around, ran back inside, and left her father a note basically begging him to understand why she was doing this and that it wasn't like against him and that she didn't hate him. Like Eleanor said in the last episode, she was a daddy's girl and she couldn't bear the thought of alienating him forever. So she propped the note on his nightstand, raced back out into the night, and climbed into Percy's arms. That Percy's arms thing is going to be a little bit of a motif for a while. So the trio were on their way to France, but that meant driving to Dover and crossing the English Channel. No uh, easy task. I've linked to a pretty detailed essay about the crossing written by Fiona Sampson, which I highly recommend that you read. Um, it's very thoughtful and um, kind of shaped the way that I approached this episode. So thank you very much to uh, Fiona Sampson if you're listening. But suffice it to say here that the crossing was super stormy and choppy. Mary, who struggled with seasickness, was miserable and spent the whole time huddled in Percy's arms trying not to vomit all over him. So, woo, romance! Yeah, I feel like this, the Channel Crossing really seems like some kind of, like the freeze frame you'd see at the end of a sitcom with, like, Mary's cowering in Percy's arms, um having a really bad time of it Percy's loving the fact that she's relying on him and Jane's just kind of I'm gonna go and read my book you two are so annoying yeah though apparently in her journal later Jane was pretty judgy about Mary's weakness quote like her her, her seasickness she's like I, oh, did, yeah. I didn't get seasick you should love me Percy I'm not weak <laughs> yeah I think that's, that's something that comes up a few times. And, mm -hmm. uh, hmm, 16-year-old girls fighting over a boy. <laughs> they landed in Calais the next morning where they checked into a fancy hotel and took a well-deserved nap. Well, in Mary's case, it was well-deserved. I'll, I'll hold judgment on the other two. That night, Mary Jane showed up, not to get Mary back, because she'd written off Mary at this point, but to convince, to, to try to convince her own daughter to return home to England. Mary ended up spending the night with Percy in his room as planned, but Mary Jane and Jane stayed in their own room. So for that one night, Mary Jane saved Jane's reputation. Um, by morning, whatever she'd said to convince Jane to stay seemed to have worked. But... It basically only took a word and a look from Percy to change Jane's mind right back again. Um, there was a little bit of push and pull, but really, Jane didn't want to go home. And Percy didn't want her to go home either, which 
must have been thrilling for Mary. Um, I really personally wish that Mary Jane had succeeded, and I because I think it would have made everyone happier. Not not because like Jane's reputation, but I just think <sighs> separating them would yeah. have been a mercy to all of them. Yeah, and I know we're not exactly the Mary Jane Godwin fan club over here, but I feel like her anger at the girls' behaviour and especially at Jane's does make a lot of sense and it's rooted at least a little bit in love because she knows what it's like to run away to France as a teenager and she knows what it's like to live as an unmarried mother or a woman whose reputation has been called into question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's bleak, even though Jane is setting out on that path, you know, a couple decades later than her mother, like, society has not changed that much between the two. No. She's doing that thing of trying to stop her daughter from making the same mistakes that she made, and you can't. You have to let them. Yeah. As was her M.O., Mary Jane took the brunt of her rage out on Mary, blaming her for Jane's refusal to go back home and talking her down to everyone. So it's Mary's fault, not really Percy's, somehow. Of course. Harriet also took to the pen, uh, spreading the rumor that Godwin had sold Mary and Jane to Percy for 1,500 pounds. Uh, So yeah, we're definitely still dealing with teenagers here, and spiteful ones at that, like, hurt and recoiling and not sure what else to do with their emotions spiteful yeah yeah so it seemed like all of england was suddenly ablaze with gossip about the scandal speculating that percy was sleeping with both of the girls and that they were maybe also like purchased like sex slaves is one of the terms i saw thrown around in the books but mary and percy with Jane in tow, didn't really care what was going on in England because they had the future ahead and the world at their feet. So they turned their back on England and traveled on to Paris, drunk on the idea of revolution. Ominous. Yeah. <laughs> the travelers arrived in war-weary Paris on August 2nd, 1814. And if you remember our Around the World feature last episode, it's war-weary because, I mean, it's just the, the, the revolution has been going on, sort of push and pull among superpowers. Um, and in particular, Napoleon had just been defeated earlier that year. Um, so people were just tired of politics and war. And, uh, I mean, not the teenagers who arrived trying to, like, revel in Mary Wollstonecraft's former glory and kind of, you know, find the spirit of history. So they were disappointed by a France that was just like, I can't even anymore. No, please no more. Um, Yeah. But sexy times awaited at the hotel. (laughs) So (laughs) things weren't all bad for Mary and Percy anyway. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Jane had her own room, and Barry and Shelley were alone for the first time, with more privacy than St. Pancras Graveyard offered, and time and space to remove those pesky Regency undergarments. But they didn't rush straight to the deed. They first talked and read some Byron, 
And then they got it on, as you do. Yes, as you do. Um, And when one of the people in the relationship is a poet, you can be sure that that first time is going to be commemorated eternally in verse. Percy would write the following lines of this night. I felt the blood that burned within her frame mingle with mine and fall around my heart like fire. Yeah, and then Percy later says that they fell into a speechless swoon afterwards. So that would be a really nice place to leave them, right? Well, we we can't. Sadly, no. (laughs) We can't leave Mary in Percy's arms yet again, saying she never wants to leave them. Um, Because Percy, in all of his excitement to rescue his love and her sister, had just neglected this tiny little detail, money. (laughs) So he's barely brought any with them. And by this point, they're basically out of cash. Luckily, he's able to find a banker who's willing to lend them £60 on the basis of Percy's noble name. It's obviously his relation to gentry. Um, So I checked that on measuring worth. And apparently that's equivalent to around about just over £4,000 as real wealth in 2018. And you might think, as Mary and Jane did, that that's a lot of cash. I kind of do as well. Mm Like, it's certainly not to be sniffed at. If someone said they were going to give me just over four grand now, I would, yeah, I wouldn't turn my nose up at it. (laughs) But it's not going to get three people far on an ambitious kind of pilgrimage around Europe. No, definitely Um, not. (laughs) When you start thinking of practicalities, it's actually not really that much. Paris was a disappointment. So it's not the raucous revolutionary city of the 90s that Mary's mother had written about. And Percy ignored the hotelier's advice and decided that walking would be, quote, delightful. Or at least that's what he told Mary and Jane. In reality, it's more likely that it appealed to him as cheap. Jane bought a donkey to carry their stuff. How much do donkeys go for in 1814? Yeah, who knows? I just thought, you know, it seems like 60 pounds would be a deal for a donkey these days. But, you know, that's 100. Yeah. I've... 200 years ago. <laughs> I mean, I know it's a donkey and not a thoroughbred horse. But I feel like they're the kind of figures that are thrown around in middle March when Fred's in from buying racehorses mm-hmm. so it's got to be much cheaper but i mean i suspect that it was cheap because it was old and sick yeah uh, because you know not long after they set out it collapses and they have to trade it in for a mule at the next town and then just to add to the fun a few days after they begin their mule life <laughs> percy twisted his ankle So Mary and Jane now have to take everything off the mule and carry it while Percy rides. And it sounds like he was kind of accident-prone. So Gordon kind of somewhat shadily describes him as having a distressing propensity for accidents. It's like, same. Yeah. If these three travellers had been hoping to find friendly locals to offer them a bed or food, they soon had a rude awakening. The countryside had been devastated by Napoleon's enemies, 
who'd galloped into France in retaliation for his invasion of Russia, leaving just absolute chaos and burned villages in their wake. And by all accounts, Napoleon's armies didn't exactly do the landscape good either. Um, so instead of being welcome visitors, the gang became easy prey for those living in the countryside to rip off. So it's your classic tourist situation of these people clearly aren't from around here. They don't know what stuff's going to cost. So we're going to tell them it's much more expensive than it is. And they don't actually come across an inn until they travel 100 miles out of Paris. So you know when you're travelling and you book a hotel or a hostel and it could kind of go either way and you just kind of hope for the best? I've personally always been really lucky with that, but Mary, Jane and Percy, not so much. Apparently one night Jane is lying in bed trying to sleep and a rat ran across her face. Oh, that's horrifying. Worst nightmares. I mean, recording this at night, I'm going to be going to sleep not too far in the future. Uh. And now I'm just thinking about that. I really don't blame her for running into Mary and Percy's room and getting into their bed. Because, like, I love animals. I find rats cuter than most people probably do, but I don't want one on my face while I sleep. Not Yeah, like, consent rat. Like, not an uninvited <laughs> rat snuggle. <laughs> right? Something about the running is disturbing as well. Yeah. So for some reason, Percy then decides that maybe France wasn't great after all. I can't imagine why. Mm-mm. So instead of following Mary's mother's journey, they're going to turn to her father's novel, Fleetwood which is set in part in Switzerland. Daddy's girl, Mary, hoped this might help her to feel connected to Godwin, even though he'd never actually been to Switzerland, but we'll get onto that later. Um, And she thought maybe knowing she was following the route from his novel might help to reconcile him to her actions, or at least show him how devoted to him she was. The oppressive August heat and Percy's injuries made proceeding on foot impractical. Instead, they used some of their rapidly depleting funds to rent a coach and drive it as far as Neuchâtel. In a move that's definitely not indicative of a codependent relationship, Mary and Percy kept a joint journal. Which I feel like is probably the Regency equivalent of one of those shared Facebook accounts where you see Mary and Percy Shelley. Yeah. <laughs> so the I think it's the Bodleian actually have a podcast of this journal that you can have a look at or... As it's a podcast, you can have a listen to rather than look at. Mm-hmm. We, we've we linked to it below, or in the episode notes. So basically, Percy writes at length about how perfect Mary is. Mary writes about the views, and they both write about how annoying Jane is. Jane has her own diary in which she complained about the attention Mary was receiving from Percy, whom she says she's in love with. Again, Mary and Jane are 16. You kind of definitely get 16-year-old vibes from that. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And then in just an absolutely wild move, Percy also writes to Harriet, you know, his wife that he's abandoned. And when he writes to her, I'll just read a very short extract. He writes, quote, I write to urge you to come to Switzerland where you will at least find one firm and constant friend, to whom your interests will be always dear, by whom your feelings will never willfully be injured. From none can you expect this but me. Um, really, Percy? Um, I feel like you've already hurt her feelings. It seems like he expected her to have the object permanence of a toddler. 
maybe Ianthe, the toddler that they have together. And she's just supposed to have forgotten how badly he's treated her because he's been away for a while. I do not understand this man. It's just... No. The, the rest of that letter is part of the Bodleian's um, current online exhibition of the Shelley archive. And um, it is basically as um, self-aware as this excerpt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that isn't something that I've cherry-picked um, as the most bonkers bit of it. It's just like that all the way through and he signs it something like your loving and constant friend and it's like you're her husband and you left her so Harriet didn't reply which everyone will be shocked to hear that is Harriet for the win right there absolutely that's the that's the uh that's the long 19th century version of new phone who dis (laughs) yeah understandably this absolute fiasco of a trip had dampened Mary's mood a little bit. Well, understandably to everyone but Percy, who accused Mary of regretting her decision and pouted about it. To appease him, which is another great sign, um, Mary ended up apologizing. Jane suspected that Mary really was unhappy, though, and, I mean... It doesn't take that much emotional intelligence to know that she is unhappy for justifiable reasons. But um, she, Jane wrote about it in her diary and said, basically, it's another instance of her saying, but I'm happy about this and I should have been the one. Yeah, there's one more instance of that kind of thing happening that I kind of wanted to kind of zoom into because it really demonstrates the personalities of all three of these people so it's a really hot day they're walking along or they've got this man driving at this point and percy points at a woodland pond and says to mary wouldn't it be nice for you to cool off in that pond just go and have a little swim i'll make sure no one can see you and then afterwards i will dry you with grass now i don't know how that works (laughs) But Mary's not really thrilled about this. She's kind of like, well, Percy, there's the driver there. We're in the middle of the countryside. Don't know how you're going to drive me off with grass. Generally, just not really practical. It seems like she basically has sussed out that this is just a way for Percy to see her naked, which by all accounts, he can do that anytime he wants Mm -hmm. or anytime they both want consensually. Um, and she's kind of like, Percy, you're being a bit of a creep here. Let's save it. Like, it seems like on their journey through France, they're not staying anywhere with privacy, so they're not being able to exercise those passions, which is maybe why he wants her to get naked, but she's being quite sensible and going, mm, no, not right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Jane's reaction to this is also hilariously on brand. She basically thinks Mary is being a massive prude and writes in her journal that she would definitely have offered to bathe naked in front of Percy if he'd asked her. So really, he should have just asked Jane. She would have jumped at the opportunity. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So they arrive in Switzerland after almost three weeks of walking in in comfortable conditions. 
like I said, they're not being offered places, beds to stay in. They're staying in places like haylofts. It's really not fun. And also from Percy's very important perspective, privacy to get it on. They're also not able to find... Um, where am I going? And basically find that it's not that exciting. So they say everyone seems comfortable and happy there, but they're quite boring and basically insinuate that everyone's maybe not that intelligent. Yeah, it's not a great not a great look on them, but um they're no. they're still seeking revolution, revolutionary spirit. In yeah. a Europe that's really tired of revolutions right now (laughs) yeah and they also weren't able to find the scenery that godwin had written about in his novel possibly because as i mentioned earlier he hadn't actually been there so (laughs) he wasn't trying to write a travel book about switzerland it's a novel he didn't write it for you to follow as a guidebook he used some artistic license there (laughs) yeah So they have about half of that £60 left. They've got £30. They rent a house on Lake Lucerne for six months. And after after day one, they're bored. For one thing, they can't see the lake for the fog that's replaced this austere heat. And it seems like there's just nothing to do. So they kind of have a chat about it and realise that I love. I would love to be a fly on the wall when the first person goes. So this isn't that great, is it? Shall we just go home? <laughs> it turns out they all kind of felt like that, and they decide that they're gonna take a barge up the Rhine. Because if they do that, they can get back up to where they can cross to England without encountering the French, which I thought was a. It's a fun twist. It also is a lot cheaper than going back the way they came. One more point of interest on their journey back up the Rhine. So in one stop, Percy and Mary have managed to escape Jane and they wander the streets of Gernsheim. And while they're there, they encounter a local legend connected with a castle named Frankenstein, which people... Hopefully it is uh, ringing some bells. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> so this involves an alchemist named... Conrad Dippel, who in the late 17th century was just obsessed with finding a cure for death. So what he would do is he would steal some bodies from graves and he would do some experiments on them. So mostly he would be feeding them pastes of ground up bones and blood. Seems legit. (laughs) Yeah. And the one question I have is that the bones are from the graves. Okay, that's not ideal, but I know where the bones came from. Mm -hmm. Where is the blood coming from? Is he using his own? Because, like, you don't get blood from dead bodies, so... That is a good question. I wonder if it was animal blood, you know? Like, just popped down Ah. to the butchers? Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I didn't even consider that, I think, because I've been vegetarian slash vegan for so long Mm. that it just was like, Mm -hmm. huh? Why'd you get blood? I I didn't even think about the fact that all the corpse blood would be unusable so (laughs) (laughs) that was the one point at which i was like i don't hate percy quite as much when he was on kind of i was describing him to my friends earlier and i was like he seems like the original like obnoxious vegan Mm. yep (laughs) anyway blood aside 
Mary and Percy seem to have become kind of a little bit obsessed with this story. So they would spend their time on the barge talking about Conrad Dipple and the books that they've read and the books they want to write. Meanwhile, Jane is just off in a corner somewhere reading Emile. Um, so Rousseau is Emile. So it seems like she liked his philosophy but hated his depiction of women. Now, I found this really interesting because Gordon in her biography says that this is a point at which she said, oh, I'm more like Mary Wollstonecraft than Mary Godwin because Mary Wollstonecraft also liked Rousseau's philosophy but not his misogyny and kind of thinks she's the proper successor to Wollstonecraft. But also, Godwin hates Rousseau and, like, the entire background of Fleetwood is... Godwin kind of writing a response to Emile. So I found that a really interesting choice. Mm. That is fascinating. And just an extra bit of my fun random trivia. Have you heard about Rousseau's spanking kink? I have, now that you mention it. (laughs) (laughs) I just can't let a mention of him pass without bringing it up because it's so bizarre. Um, I did link a proper academic article about it oh good because i was gonna say in the references (laughs) please use caution if you google this (laughs) yeah so this is another thing like the sex on western cross grave that comes up in roundups of fun facts about historical figures but basically Rousseau got spanked as a kid and then figured out that he really liked it which fair play to him good for him know thyself Rousseau. (laughs) that's a complete detour yeah um So, Percy, Mary and Jane finally made it to Holland on their way to back to England. And they got stuck there waiting out bad weather. Mary's mood gets worse and worse. And in part, this is because she was pregnant. Wow. What a jaw-dropping fact to learn. (laughs) 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 Who could have anticipated this turn of events? (laughs) I'm sensing some sarcasm in your tone. So I think this is a good place to leave it um, because we're already, you know, getting up there in terms of episode length. Um, So next time on Victorian Scribblers, tune in for 19th Century Teen Mom. Yeah, we hadn't anticipated doing three parts, but I think the more we come up with fun, interesting things about her life, even if you use a cut-off point of when Frankenstein is written, that's still so much packed into that short life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She is worth the deep dive. Mary Shelley is fascinating, even though we still haven't gotten to the part where she becomes Mary Shelley. She's still Mary Godwin. So that and more to come next time. So thank you for listening, as always. Yes, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with part three. Bye. Bye. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com.
slash support us to donate. Every dollar helps provide us with things like web hosting, subscriptions to research databases, and recording equipment, which all helps us bring more content to you. The music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio. Our closing music this season is a 1911 recording of Come Josephine and My Flying Machine, performed by Ada Jones and Billy Murray, and made available by the UCSB Cylinder Audio Archive.